Hello and welcome to a special edition of Restoring the Faith. You know, many of us became aware of the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church in 2002 in Boston. But the truth of the matter is that it's been ongoing for nearly 100 years up to that point. And in many ways, it still has not been solved. Our guest today is Kieran Tapsell. He is an accomplished uh, uh, retired civil attorney, author and commentator on, civil, on canon law, and child sex abuse in the Catholic Church. He has testified before the Australian Royal Commission into the institutional responses of, of child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and has blown the cover uh, off of this important issue. It remains something that hasn't been discussed, and what we're going to get into today in our discussion is exactly what weaknesses within canon law still exist and have enabled serial predators in the Catholic Church to exist, and why Catholic media has absolutely manifestly refused to report on it. Welcome to uh, the channel for the first time, Mr. Tapsell. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. Um, first and foremost, I know you you basically have written the book, the, one of the definitive works on the history of child sex abuse in the Catholic Church. Um, as, a, as a civil attorney, uh, how did you become interested in this particular topic and, and, and develop such an expertise in it? Well, I, I uh, spent almost six years in a Catholic sem seminary training to be a priest. And uh, one of the professors there was, a, was a, a priest named Bede Heather. And he was probably the one who I admired most. Um, I left before ordination and I became a civil lawyer. And uh, I didn't know too much about him, except I knew he'd become the Bishop of Parramatta, which is a suburb of Sydney. And in 2007, I, I read this newspaper report that um, he had been covering up the um, sexual abuse of children by at least three priests in his diocese. Now, what happened was uh, he... Um, these priests, their complaints had come from victims, and uh, he did what I subsequently discovered canon law required him to do, and that is to carry out the investigation. So he employed some canon lawyers, one of whom was in a class ahead of me in the seminary, to investigate, and the report came back, apparently, which said, yes, it was going on. Now, nothing happened to these um, priests, and the victims got a bit annoyed about this, so they went to the police and they told the police there'd been an in, in, internal investigation of the matter and they'd provided statements. So the police rang up Bishop Heather and said to him, well, look, we want to see those statements and we want to see the report by your canon lawyer. And he said, uh, I can't give them to you. Um, well, they weren't satisfied with that. So what they did was they issued a, got a, a warrant issued by a judge to search his place, they got all the documents, they prosecuted the priest and the priest went to jail. Now I thought, he, Bede Hiller was, uh, uh, in my opinion, was an admirable man. Of the, of the, in fact, he was probably the one I admired most in the seminary. And I thought, what? why did this good man not um, give those documents to the, to the police? And even more so, why hadn't he reported it to the police? In New South Wales at the time, there was an obligation to do that. It was part of the civil law. And 
it occurred to me, having you know been in a seminary and that, that, and had studied canon law for about three years, it had to have something to do with canon law. So I went looking, and I found it, and I discovered that in 1922, Pope Pius XI had issued this instruction called um, Crimen Solicitationis. Now, I didn't discover this myself. I mean, I found it on the internet because it, it was actually discovered in the United States. When I say discovered, I mean became public in the United States. Because over there, there was a civil case going on and um, subpoenas were issued. And it was discovered in, in the secret archive, which under canon law, every bishop is supposed to keep. And that was about 2003. So it, it received a bit of publicity then. It was a secret law. It was a law which normally, just like civil laws in America and here, uh, is published on some kind of a government gazette. And the, the, the Vatican has that system too. But it was never to be published and it was never to be commented on by canon lawyers. I mean, they could know about it, but they weren't allowed to write about it. It was an extraordinary document. It, and it provided that any information obtained in canonical inquiries about child sexual abuse, plus a few other things, was subject to the secret of the Holy Office. And the breach of that um, ended up in automatic excommunication from the church. And it could only be lifted by the Pope personally. I mean, this excommunication, the church has a system where certain bishops, etc., can lift excommunications. This had to be done by the Pope personally. It was an extraordinary document. And the surprising thing is that it um, was continued by Pope Pius XII. And John XXIII expanded to cover not just diocesan priests, but also um, priests in religious orders. And then in 1974, Pope Paul VI abolished the pontifical secret and replaced it with the secret of the Holy Office. And that even extended the idea of secrecy because under Crimen Solicitationis, um, it was only information that was obtained within the investigation itself. What Paul VI did was make it apply to an allegation so that even if, if, a, if someone complained about being abused to the bishop, the bishop could not report it to the police. And in fact, that's the interpretation put on that by a series of curia cardinals saying that um, bishops should be prepared to go to jail. That is, break any civil law reporting law um, in, in preference to breaking the pontifical secret. So when I look, saw all this and discovered all this, I realised, well, that's exactly what Bishop Beadheader was doing. He was following canon law. It's an extraordinary situation because um, I then decided that what I should do is actually go back and have a look to see how the church had dealt historically with child sexual abuse. And for 1500 years, they had quite an acceptable policy. That is, that 
child sexual abuse was not just a sin, it was a crime. And it had to be dealt with the way crimes are dealt with in civil society. Now that meant, of course, in those days they had a lot more savage punishments that we would have today. But nevertheless, um, and of course, up until about the 12th century, the church and state were the same. Um, bishops were often judges as well. St. Augustine, for example, was a civil judge. And um, these people were punished. And if, if that punishment under the civil law, as, as it was under Roman law for sexual abuse of children, was execution, then clerics were executed. I managed to, to get a book which was written by a Spanish historian about the Spanish Inquisition. Now, the Inquisition, in people think, and correctly, but it was mainly about heresy, but it was also about what was called sodomia. Now, it's not anal sex as we understand it today. It was any kind of sex, sexual activity which was not um, heterosexual, normal sex between, between married people. So it included masturbation, for example. But he um, pulled out all of the cases dealing with um, sodomia in a particular area of the Inquisition in Spain. And of course, it was a classic case of what has happened in our modern times. Most of the abuse was of, of boys um, who were in schools attached to monasteries. But the results of those cases when they occurred were that priests were if if the the offense was publicly known they were burned at the stake and if um it wasn't publicly known they were garroted in prison now of course not all sexual abuse was regarded as, as of the same severity just like now so if in fact it wasn't as serious as say serial abuse of children, then the priest might be um, sentenced to some years on the galleys, rowing, you know, boats, ships um, for so many years. But then there was something which is very modern about the, the sentences too, and that was they were forbidden to have access to children after they had served their sentence. And they were not allowed to become priests again, they were, but they were dismissed. And there were something like six or seven decrees from popes and church councils saying that in the case of child sexual abuse, priests should be stripped of their status, which gave them a certain protection under you know, Roman Catholic law, stripped of their status and were to be handed over to the civil authorities. Now, what happened was, is that in about 2010, Pope Pius X decided to um, update canon law and to codify it. Now, of course, as you can imagine, there would have been an accumulation of all sorts of decrees, which, you know, some of which would contradict each other, depending on what Pope was in, in charge, etc. So it actually needed to have something like that. And just to clarify, uh, you said Pope St. Pius X 1910. Sorry, did I? Yes, 1910. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, now, the secretary of that, of that commission, 
was Eugenio Pacelli, who became Pius XII. So he had a lot to do with what had happened. Well, what they did was, is that they threw out all of those previous decrees which required abusive priests to be handed over to the civil authorities. And the church then decided that they were going to handle it on their own and they would impose punishments, but the maximum punishment that would be imposed under canon law was that they would be deposed and dismissed. And that's all, nothing else. Now, five years later, Pius XI issued his instruction, Crimen Solicitationis, which said that not only were they not to be handed over the civil authorities, but it was to be covered up. And that has lasted for a hundred years, almost a hundred years, until um, 2019, when Pope Francis finally abolished the pontifical secret over child sexual abuse. Okay. So the bulk of this interview will cover uh, the history of this issue up until 2019. Now, let me ask you this. There was, there has been, and I don't know if it's still going on today, but there has been this quote unquote catch 22 defense where a priest who is a serial predator, a pedophile cannot be laicized precisely because he is a pedophile. It's like a catch 22. Imagine if, I mean, just for the audience, imagine if this type of defense existed in like the state of Tennessee or the state of Maryland where, oh, you can't prosecute me as a pedophile because I am a pedophile. I mean, uh, th this is this is maddening. Well, it, look, if you look at the civil law equivalent, it's a bit like saying um, you can't prosecute me for drunk driving because I'm an alcoholic. That's what it means. It's just absurd. Um, the, the interesting thing is, um, that, like, there's, there's nothing wrong. Excuse me. There's nothing wrong with this concept of imputability. We have the equivalent in civil law, which is called insanity. So that if someone is really insane and thinks that their mother is really about to kill them, but they aren't, but they, you know they're suffering from a complete delusion, well, the civil law has a way of dealing with that. They're not criminally responsible for it, but of course they're locked up probably for the rest of their life in a psychiatric institution. Now. Um, so there's nothing wrong with the concept of imputability. But under the 1917 Code of Canon Law, the um, accused person had to prove with moral certainty, which is the equivalent of proof beyond reasonable doubt in our civil system, um, that they were effectively insane. Now, what happened was, is that the 1917 code was abrogated and replaced by the 1983 code of canon law. And that was changed. It was changed to read that they, everyone was presumed to be imputable unless it appeared that they weren't appeared. That's all. Now, what happened with that was, is that um, in 
1993 and again in 2000 in Dublin, there were two serial pedophiles. I mean, they were dreadful. One of them would have a new boy every two weeks. And they were dismissed by the Dublin Canonical Court. They then appealed to the Roman Rotor in Rome, as they are entitled to, and the Rotor set aside the dismissals and said they'd been diagnosed as pedophiles and therefore it wasn't imputable, so they couldn't be dismissed. I mean, there were certain restrictions put on them, like one of them was told he had to live in a monastery, you know, and pray and do penance, but the big problem was no monastery wanted him. But you see, that's I don't I don't know at the moment what the Roman Rota has decided on that now because there's not a system of precedent in canon law quite like in civil law, but nevertheless those those decisions are, are certainly influential. Now in two thousand and twenty one, um, Pope Francis did some reforms to the disciplinary system. And in relation to this um, 1321, they actually just changed some words around. Um, it, for example, it says um, in the 1983 code, it said where an external violation has occurred, imputability is presumed unless it is otherwise apparent. Now they changed that in 2021 to where has been an external violation, imputability is presumed, so that's all the same, unless it appears otherwise. Well, what's the difference? There isn't a difference. I mean, this was one of the things that the Australian Royal Commission said should be thrown out completely, because it shouldn't be a precondition to child sexual abuse should not be of itself evidence relating to imputability. And that was ignored. I mean, they changed a few words, but they didn't change the substance of what it meant. So I don't know what's been happening, because there's a, another problem, which no doubt we'll discuss, is this fact of the, it, it seems that the canonical decrees are not being published. So we don't know what, so far as I know anyway, um, we don't know really what's happening in the, in the church at the moment. Sorry, Mike, I, I've lost your sound. Sorry, I was on mute. The the one of the um, cases that you mentioned, I don't know if you were speaking specifically about Pat McGuire, who was a priest in Ireland, who was um, laicized and then later found his way through appeal back into the priesthood. In this case, he made his way to Latin America. I believe it was Colombia. And in Colombia, there are no civil mandatory reporting laws. And uh, so he was able to continue to uh, molest and rape children in Colombia for some amount of time. And even when caught, uh, it was regarded as a church matter and it was not referred to authorities because it, um, 
the, the way the law was at the time and may still be, uh, canon law that is, is that it to the extent that the that the civil law requires reporting, then you will report. Otherwise, you just handle it internally. Um, so I don't know if you if if in the story of the two Irish priests you were talking about who got their laicization set aside was one of those cases, but that's an interesting case study in in terms of a priest who it who is ordered to be laicized gets it overturned using the catch twenty two defense of you can't prosecute me for raping boys because I'm a pedophile. That's my defense. That defense worked. It was effective. He then transferred, made his way into a country where he could safely rape boys uh, without being turned over to the civil authorities. Um, that's well, well, yes, in, in answer to your question, yes, one of them was Maguire. One of the ones I was referring to was Maguire, but I didn't realize he'd gone to Colombia, which in itself is interesting because Colombia is a bit unique in that it ha actually has an agreement with the Vatican. And it provides that any, in any priest who is accused or, or, or of a crime, any, any trial that he has is to be kept in secret. It's not to be made public. And in addition, if a bishop is um, accused of a, of a civil crime, even murder, he's to be tried by a canonical court, not by a, uh, a civil court. I mean, it's an extraordinary situation. And so far as I know, there's actually been no change of it. There has been demands by the Colombian authorities to alter the terms of the of the treaty. I think it was a treaty in 1973, I think. And there, and there was a, even a cardinal, Cardinal Castrion, who was the Archbishop of Bucamaranga, I think. He became the the um, head of the <clears throat> of the congregation for the clergy. And he was accused of receiving drug money from various cartels. And he was actually prosecuted. And the lawyers came up to the court and said, look, here's a treaty. He can't be, he can't be charged. And it didn't proceed. He then went to Rome, became head of the congregation for the clergy. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's shocking that this uh, could happen, and it, and it, and the, the level of uh, corruption. I mean, so l l let me not to beat a dead horse, Kieran, but let me just ask you this: at least up until 2019, and possibly thereafter. But the best defense to if if you are a priest accused of child molestation, the best defense you could muster would be: yes, I molested children because I'm a pedophile. I have I have done it. I have done it uh, maliciously. I've done it for a long time. I've done it to multiple children. The more victims you have, the longer you've done it, the more likely you are to remain a priest. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. And I don't think, if, if in fact that's still the interpretation of, of sec, um, Canon 1321, um, the change made by Pope Francis doesn't make any difference at all. It says exactly the same thing. Yeah. Just use a few simpler words, that's all. Yeah. Now, you were part of the Royal Commission into child <laughs> sex abuse. You, you, uh, you were one of the witnesses, um, and, and God bless you for doing that. We, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, at least in the Anglosphere in the West, to my knowledge, are not even aware 
of this commission. Can you give us uh, a rundown on the findings of it and the recommendations that the commission made? Yes, it went for five years and and the um, it, it, it was very thorough. It, and it wasn't just the Catholic Church that was being examined. It was Jehovah's Witnesses, Anglican Church, um, and not just churches. Uh, there was, I think, Swimming Australia was one. It was a response of institutions to child sexual abuse. That is, what did they do about it? Or what didn't they do about it? But, but it is true that there were far more cases in the Catholic Church than any other institution. And in fact, the crimes of, of priests for child sexual abuse were far in excess of the, of the statistics in relation to all other religious denominations. So it was pretty bad in Australia, it really was. Um, the Commission came out with its report with various recommendations, um, amongst them that there should be mandatory reporting of all allegations of child sexual abuse, sexual abuse to the civil authorities. Now that doesn't take away the jurisdiction of most private institutions to deal with child sexual abuse in terms of disciplinary matters, but the first thing is the state deals with it. And those laws have been passed. At the time of the commission, um, New South Wales, the only state, the sixth state, um, was the only state in, in which um, that law was in force. Um, now, all states have that, so that even historic abuse um, has to be and has to be reported. Now, I mean by historic abuse, um, abuse where the victim has reached the age of eighteen and hasn't complained about it until then. The Commission found that the average time in which a person comes to deal with this and even is prepared to talk about it is something like 25 to 30 years. So, I mean, statutes of limitation, for example, um, in, in civil law, in terms of suing for damages for that kind of thing, are, are really quite inappropriate. And in fact, most states have actually um, abolished their statutes of limitation for child sexual abuse. It also dealt with various things such as um, celibacy. It, it said that it found that celibacy was not of itself um, a cause of child sexual abuse, but it was certainly a factor. And you could see that in the differences between the non-celibate Catholic Church clergy and, sorry, the non-celibate clergy in other religions and celibate Catholic um, clergy. But of course, there are a whole lot of other things as well, um, including, um, I suppose, opportunity more than anything. You see, there was a very strong um, altar boy system in the church and altar boys were quite often abused. There was uh, a lot of religious orders had boarding schools now, for reasons which had nothing to do with child sexual abuse and more with economic reasons. Um, there's very few boarding schools now. So there wasn't those same sort of opportunities 
So that's why things have probably changed in in the Catholic Church in Australia for that re for those two reasons. And of course, I mean, particularly after the Royal Commission, I mean, what boy wants to be an older boy now? Um, it's a bit like the Scouts. The Scouts are having the same problems for exactly the same reasons. But in terms of the Church, the Royal Commission did make certain recommendations um, for canon law to be changed. Now, the most important one in my view anyway, was the abolition of the pontifical secret. Now, Pope Francis did that in 2019 to his credit. But they also said there were there were two canons. One is what we've already talked about, 1321, about imputability, that um, the diagnosis of um, pedophilia should not be a factor in, in deciding imputability. Now that hasn't that hasn't been changed, as I pointed out. It, it says, says the same thing now. But the other one was one three four one. One three four one gave the bishop a discretion as to whether or not he would put a, a priest on a canonical trial, and it basically said that he shouldn't be put on a canonical trial effectively if there's some hope of his reform. Now, of course, as we know, in the United States and in Australia as well, and lots of other countries, the first thing a bishop did was actually to send them off to some kind of an institution or to see psychiatrists or something like that. Um, but they wouldn't be put on, on a, a canonical trial necessarily. Now, Pope Francis did change that in the 2021 things in that the, the bishop has to report any allegations to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. That actually started in 2001 with um, Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict in 2010 as well. But it, he still has to be satisfied that he's not capable of reform before you can put him on a canonical trial. Now, that is a canon which the Vatican would have to consider um, because the, the since 2001 is with Sacramentum Sanctitatis Tutela um, the bishop had to do a preliminary inquiry would be sent to Rome and then Rome would decide what should be done and they were the ones to decide if there was to be a canonical trial well they're bound by that canon the Royal Commission said that that pastoral, if you like, pastoral defence or pastoral issue should not be a precondition to putting them on trial. Um, we in the Western uh, Hemisphere, again, don't have any idea about any of this. There has been a total media blackout Catholic media blackout. Uh, you don't hear it either on the conservative side of things or on the liberal side of things. You know, conservatives would be inclined to blame, you know, a disordered uh, same-sex attraction uh, as the root cause of pedophilia within the priesthood. Liberals would be inclined to blame, um, you know, uh, celibacy and
I don't know if you're still, can you still hear me? Yes, I can. There was a bit of an interruption, but I can now. Yes. Okay. So the, so the two sides may disagree on the root cause of it. Um, but neither, both sides have agreed not to report on it. And I think that's the most fascinating thing where even you may even have news outlets that claim to be dedicated to rooting out sex abuse in the Catholic church. And yet even they are, are absolutely silent on the, the systematic weaknesses of canon law, which, which are really enabling the serial abuse of children. What, what do you think accounts for that? Well, well, what you've just said it certainly wasn't true in Australia. It was all, all over the all over the newspapers almost every day. I mean, um, or particularly when people like Cardinal Pell, for example, was up before the um, Royal Commission. Sure, um, sure. Let me let me let me recalibrate the question though, that I, because many faithful Catholics in the United States don't trust the media at all. So. If if CNN on on our side of the of of the world starts talking about the Catholic Church, most Catholics uh, just flip it off, turn turn the channel, and assume they're being lied to. So I guess the heart of my question is, why can't we get Catholic media, big establishment Catholic media, or even renegade Catholic media, uh, you know, uh, like this podcast for example, to report on the systematic abuse of children with respect to the protections afforded to abusers in canon law? Well, the, the problem is, I, I think that um, I, I did find a little bit of this. I, uh, the secular media were quite happy to publicize what I had to say um, and to promote the book that I had written. Um, but Obviously, it was critical of the church. The Catholic media weren't too keen on doing that. Um, it, there was one instance where um, soon after the book was published, there was a very favourable review of it published in a, in a Catholic online magazine. And the author of that was a professor of canon law. He was Australian, but nevertheless, he was a professor of canon law, uh, sorry, professor of moral theology, not canon law, at the um, Catholic University of America. Now, he wrote quite a favorable review of the book and, um, and it was up for about a week. And then it got taken down and I contacted him and said, what's happened to your review? I had a copy of it. And he said, I got, I got some um, criticisms from um, canon lawyers, not only about the book, but also about uh, my email, about my review. And I said, well, I mean, the way to deal with these things is if, if they have criticisms of the book, then they should come out and say what the criticisms are. And if, if I have a need to respond, then I, I would respond. That's the way these things should be dealt with in all kinds of societies, including the Catholic Church. And I, the other thing I said was, no, I don't have a doctorate in canon law. I don't have a licentiate in canon law. I only did a fairly basic thing for three years. But since 2007, I had been researching this particular part of canon law for something like seven years before I wrote the book. And I was acutely aware that sometimes 
um, if you're a lay person, if you like, and you start looking into things, you might miss something. For example, you could become expert in contract law and suddenly find that the Antitrust Act is, which is not to do with contract but has effects on contracts, um, could affect it. So I was always, at the time of the publication of the book, quite happy to listen to canon lawyers and say, well, look, what's wrong with it? But it never happened. Um, there, I did do a symposium down in Melbourne after the publisher of the book and there was a, an eminent canon lawyer came along and, and really, to be honest, the, his most serious criticism of the book was to say that I had called Crimen Solicitationis a decree of the Pope when it was an instruction. Now, that's a bit like saying it wasn't an act of Parliament, it was a regulation. They both have the same effect. Exactly the same effect. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how it was done. They are the law. And that's all I ever got. And another case, there was the local Canon Law Journal had published a couple of articles by Canon lawyers about um, secrecy in the church. I was quoted at one stage, but it was only about a newspaper article. They didn't really go into what I'd written in the book. And I had some misgivings about the correctness of what they were saying. So I wrote an article. And it, look, I've written lots of articles for, for civil law journals. I know how you write uh, articles properly. You are respectful and you put up your arguments and, and so forth. And I sent it on to the um, this canon law journal and the editors wrote back and said, oh, we can't publish this. You don't have a doctorate in canon law. I mean, really. <laughs> I, look, it's quite appropriate for any discipline to reject an article which does not follow the form or, or the criteria of that particular discipline. I mean, I, I told this to a few friends of mine who were editors of scientific journals, and I just laughed and said, well, what does it matter if you got a degree or not? Anyway, the, the point of the matter, matter is the whole thing was just met by silence here in Australia amongst canon lawyers. There, there was, well, in fairness, I should say that at the Royal Commission, there were, there were some um, two canon lawyers and Tom Doyle um, from the United States who gave evidence and one had presented a, a report to the Royal Commission and where he argued, um, and I think incorrectly, um, that it didn't stop... Um, it, it, it did not stop reporting to the police. But the interesting thing was that this particular canon lawyer had actually given evidence in a, a civil case and was asked about whether or not the information came out of a, of a canonical inquiry could be reported to the police. And he said, oh, you'd have to get a dispensation from Rome for that. Well, if you have to get a dispensation from Rome, it means it's forbidden. That's right. And that's very concerning, and that enables uh, this crisis to continue. Um, all right. 
we've covered quite a bit of ground. I know that I would love to have you back um, on, and maybe we can dive into what uh, the situation looks like post-2019. I know sort of around that time, you moved on to other topics. Again, you're a civil attorney, you're retired. This is something that you've dedicated seven to 10 years of your life looking at, but you have also moved on to other things. So I'd I don't want to. I don't think it's fair right now to ask you about anything that's that's super current. But I suspect that the audience would love to hear from you again. Um, you know, to the extent that you could make yourself available to us. Well, I'm I'm happy to do that, and I I have made some inquiries from some people in in the United States because obviously that's what your audience is more interested in. But but here in Australia, um, I, I can say something about that. And that is one of the recommendations of the Royal Commission was that the um, Vatican courts and authorities should report their cases. And of course, if need be to, you know, um, change the, the names of the, of the victims or whatever. Um, but they should be reported and the reasons for their decisions should be set out. Now, what Francis Sullivan, who was the um, CEO of the Truth, Justice and Healing Council, which was the, the body which appeared for the Catholic Church at the Royal Commission, but like for any, all religious orders, all bishops, etc., etc. So he knows what he's talking about, but he, he published an article in, in uh, about a year ago, which was, why is the Catholic Church still investigating itself? Yes. And he said that they, they are not producing these reports. Now, I haven't personally looked into that myself, but he said they are not producing those reports. So you, you start getting inconsistent decisions. One person might be dismissed, another one may not be, etc., etc. And the other thing which the Royal Commission insisted on is that the punishment, ordinary punishment, for child sexual abuse should be dismissal from the priesthood. We don't know if that's happening. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I I personally suspect that it's not happening. But in our follow up interview, perhaps we can uh, we can opine on that. Uh, the book I want to I want to bring up your book one more time for those who maybe didn't uh, get the point of it. Uh, Potiphar's wife, the Vatican's secret and child sexual abuse. This is written by our guest today, Kieran Tapsell. What is your hope with the book? Your final final question here. Who's the who's the audience? Is it parents? Is it bishops? Is it somewhere in between? Uh, what is your hope after having uh, done all this research and getting this word out? Well, originally, the, my book started off as a submission to the Royal Commission, and I showed it to a few, showed that submission to a few people, and they said, "Look, you got to turn this into a book." The main, my main motivation was. I could see from a parliamentary inquiry down in Victoria that the bishops and witnesses from the church were not going to tell the truth about the the role of canon law in this. This was not just something that came from the bottom up, that is, came from the laity or came from the bishops. It came from the top, from six popes. And that's what I thought the Royal Commission should know about and i think i was successful because they effectively they they accepted the the history which i gave 
and they also accept that there were things wrong with canon law. And I, I made something like um, 16 recommendations for canon law, sorry, 21, and they accepted 16 of them. And they, they threw a few more in as well, such as things over celibacy and so forth, which I didn't concern myself with. So, I, I mean, I, I wanted to bring it to attention that this was the truth. And so far, I've not come across anyone who's really done any serious rebuttal of it in the church or outside the church. Well, may the uh, may the truth prevail in all in all things and in all ways. And uh, my hats off to you, Mr. Tapsell, for putting the rigor required into this. And my my hope is is that more outlets uh, in the United States and Canada uh, would take up this topic in a serious way and and um, do the work that that you have done. Um, it's been an honor to have you on the program, and I do hope so much that you can come back. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir.